You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Now, normally, as someone who wears glasses, I hate 3D movies. Anyone? No? Now, thank goodness the movies aren't in the dark because you'd be laughing at me if you saw my 3D glasses over my eyeglasses, which is normally how I do it, right? Now, I'm assuming most, if not all of us, have experienced 3D movies or IMAX 3D movies at one point. So it goes like this. You take out a second mortgage to pay for the 3D tickets because these prices are getting ridiculously high. And then they hand you these glasses that pretty much look like what most people wear nowadays as eyeglasses, right? And then you sit down in your seat, and the movie advertisements say, go on, there's no biggie, everything is still clear. But then they tell you to put the glasses on, right? The screen, there's a slide that says, now's the time, please put your glasses on, or something like that. At which point, the 3D images start rolling in. So if you don't wear your glasses, everything will look distorted. Everything will look kind of fuzzy. But then you wear your glasses and you go beyond the two-dimensional pictures into the 3D realm, right? And you feel like things are flying right at you. And aside from the inevitable headaches you'll get, you'll be able to enjoy the movie with a depth and a fullness never before imagined. And then everything begins to make sense and the pictures are wonderfully clear and vivid. And it's pretty cool, but at the same time, I hate it, right? Now, here's the thing. Our passage today is like that. It's rich and it's full, but in, in order to see that richness and fullness, you'll need the right set of glasses. But by the grace of God, he provides those glasses for us at no additional cost, but at the cost of his son, Jesus. Did it just get real? Turn to your neighbor and say, it got real. <clears throat> Good, let's begin. So the story itself isn't that difficult to understand, but let me review what we've just read, okay? So when Isaac was weaned, maybe around the age of three, Abraham throws a party. But in the midst of all the festivities, Sarah sees something disturbing, okay? Mama sees something disturbing. Ishmael, Abraham's other and older son by Hagar, was mocking the, to the toddler Isaac. Now, look, I'm all about making fun of three-year-olds, okay? I mean, I have one at home. And it's really fun to do, but this wasn't some playful banter or like, you know how older siblings roughhouse with their younger siblings? I realized growing up that my love language to my younger brother was punching and kicking him. But in Isaac's case, it wasn't just two kids playing. Now, you have to know this. Ishmael was probably around 17 years old. He was 17 years old. That's a big age difference. And so this laughing or mocking, it wasn't some, it wasn't some innocent sibling thing. In fact, in Galatians, Apostle Paul, when describing this event, he called it persecution. In other words, he's saying Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. And Sarah witnessed it. And so rightfully so, like any protective mom, she was upset. Actually, she was enraged. So in that anger, she demands Abraham to send Hagar and her son Ishmael away. And surprisingly, the passage t tells us God seemed to take Sarah's side and tells Abraham to do what she says. And so Abraham listens to her, sends him off, never to see them again as far as we can tell. 
But when Hagar and her son, they get lost and they run out of water, God, he intervenes to save them. God, he points them to a well and he provides for them and he promises that Ishmael would also become a great nation. So that's the story. That's pretty straightforward. It's, that's what happened. But here's where the difficulty lies. Questions come up now, don't it? Questions like, why did God do this at all? Wasn't God cruel in sending them out, greenlighting this banishment? Where's God's compassion? Where's his mercy? What's the point of all this for us? This is when we need to put our glasses on because the answer is found in remembering God's original plan. And it all ties in to the foreshadowing of Isaac's birth. So hear me out. Remember, God made a covenant. He made a promise, a pact with Abraham. God promised that this covenant would come to fulfillment through the promised seed. Right? You guys remember that? But Abraham and Sarah, in their frustration and their lack of faith, they put matters into their own hands and they produced a child. Sure, but this child wasn't the promised seed of God. Later on, God, he provides the promised heir, baby Isaac. According to the Bible, Isaac was the foreshadowing of the real promised seed. And who is that promised seed? Can you all say it? Jesus. Jesus. The promised seed is not a group of people. It's not a, any other person. It is Jesus. Don't take my word for it. It says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Everyone say, it is Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, it is Jesus. It will always be Jesus. So in other words, the point of all this information, all that's happening concerning Isaac, the child that God promised Abraham, actually, according to Galatians 3.16, was to show us something about who Jesus is. That's why we can't just read this passage at face value, but we have to read it through the lens of God's plan of redemption, the gospel. Only then will it make sense because God's glorious divine plan, it doesn't center around just one figure or one group of people. His divine plan of glory and salvation centered upon himself. So that now, that's how we'll have to view this passage. So I got three points. My first is this. Jesus comes first in your family. Okay, say it. One, two, three. Jesus comes first in your family. Jesus first. Can I hear an amen? amen? My wife and I love our kids. Can you say duh? <laughs> it's the weirdest phenomenon, I'll tell you. Because they'll be sleeping and we pray and hope to God that they don't wake up. Right? <laughs> Which, of all nights, last night, they decide to wake up repeatedly. Like they woke each other up. <laughs> Even though they're sleeping in their rooms across the hall... Even though we spent countless hours rocking them back to sleep, at the end of the day, when they're in bed, they're sleeping, and we're in our beds, we miss them. We talk about them. Can all the parents say, yeah? Yeah, parents know what I'm talking about, right? We miss them. Grace and I, even in bed, we start giggling about how cute we think they are, even though people may think they're not. Even, even later on, my, when my daughter plays dress-up princess and says, Daddy, where's my prince? I'm like, I'm your prince. It's like, no, where's my prince? And then she says, I need to go to my castle. She may not know, but it's analogous to marriage, and it's breaking my heart. 
She meets her future husband and she leaves me. It makes me sad, but then as a pastor, I always bring it back to the gospel and say, no, it's about her spiritual union with Christ. She will live with mom and dad forever. But either way, I miss my kids now, and I know when they grow up and they get married, I'll miss my kids then. Why? Because for our children are etched into the hearts of every parent. That's just the reality. Let me ask you this. Do you think Abraham loved Ishmael that much? I think so. I think so. In fact, I'm sure he did because you don't just raise a boy as your only child for 17 years and then not care about what happens to him. And despite what may have happened in the earlier chapters, I'm sure Abraham even cared for Hagar too. Because you don't have intimate relations with a woman who then has your only child and raises him in your home for 17 years and not care for her. That's why in verse 11, when Sarah told Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, it reads, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, like he was torn. He's not comfortable with this. One commentary said the reason why Abraham gave them such a small supply of water and food was so that they wouldn't go too far away. Look. Abraham was stressed out with Sarah's lack of concern for Hagar and Ishmael. It was a sad and it was a bad situation. After all, Hagar was good enough to use when they desperately needed and wanted a son. After all, whose idea was it? Sarah's. And then when Ishmael was born, he had been considered Sarah's son, not just Hagar's. But now Sarah doesn't call Hagar, you know, the other woman. She calls him the slave woman. And Ishmael is no longer her son. Now he calls her the son of that slave woman, slave woman's son. This had to have been distressing. This had to have been difficult for Abraham with all this bitterness going around in his family. Does anyone here have bitterness in their family? Yeah. And to add to that, the most distressing thing of all that was the fact that God agreed with Sarah. Verse 12 says, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Listen to Sarah? God, are you, are you not seeing what's happening here? This is my boy. I love him. He comes from me. It's, the situation is bad. It's difficult. But God, you're telling me to send him away? How can that be? How can that be fair? How is that right? God, really? Okay, so right now I think our vision is starting to get a bit distorted, so let's put on our glasses. Let's remember what's at stake here. God reminds Abraham, verse 12, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. And here it is. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Get this. Remember, Isaac is a representative of God's plan that will be fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, I've got a plan, and it is more important than your plan. You get that? I've got something going, and it is far more important than what's going on with your life right now. And the, and the urgency of it. 
Abraham's crying out to God saying, don't let my son and the birth mother go. This is not fair. God, do what you do. Save them. Protect them. Change Sarah's mind. Do something miraculous. Change the situation. Do something. And God straight up tells Abraham, let them go because I have a plan. And it revolves around the promised Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus comes before your family. Jesus comes before your family. This isn't some loose interpretation because Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's exactly what was going on with Abraham because at that moment, Abraham was having to learn that God takes precedence over his love for his family. And folks, I think we're still having to learn the same thing today, too. Now, I believe there's a divine order of sorts. The most important relationship is first and foremost our relationship with God. Number one. Then it is our relationship with our families and then our relationship with church members. Maybe people of my generation, they've been hurt by their parents. And so they've sworn to themselves that they will always have time for their kids and have always time for their family functions, and that's good and all. But the mistake I believe my generation of believers are making is that in their attempt to be the best father and the best husband and the best wife and the best mother possible, whether they know it or not, is that they've ended up making their family an idol. They've made their family an idol because now every decision isn't about what would God want? What does God, what do you seek after? What do you want? But now every single life decision that they make becomes more about what does my wife want? What does my husband want? What does my children want? What do I want? You see, we skewed and totally distorted that divine order and we placed family before God. And if you feel that you've done that, know this. And I have to check my heart too constantly. If you believe you're placing the will of your spouse and your children or even yourself before God's will, then know this. There will be spiritual imbalance in your life. There will be spiritual imbalance in your life. And you will really begin to spiritually struggle because our lifeline is not in our families. Our lifeline is in God. And our God is a jealous God. And he will not share in his glory, for he alone is worthy to take center stage in our hearts, and Jesus alone takes precedence over our families. Amen? And so we as men, as leaders of our households, and we as women, the ones whose spiritual support is far greater than anyone else to the husbands, you must keep your spiritual lives in check. Keep your spiritual lives in check. You must make sure that God, he doesn't just get a bigger piece of the pie, but he gets the whole pie. What are you doing in your family right now that's putting your wants above God's? Is your life, your schedule, your money, your ambitions, your dreams, your everything, is it revolving around your children? Is it revolving around your mom and your dad, around your spouse? Or does it revolve around seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness? Hear me out. 
It's not only in that one particular situation do we see people putting family before God. Sometimes people hold themselves back from fully obeying the call of God because they're concerned for their families and future family. So they say to themselves, God is calling me into the mission field. But if I go as a missionary, how will I find a spouse? Or God's calling me to do this or to do that. Maybe enter into ministry or maybe work a job that I know God is leading me to do. It may not be a high-paying job, but I know God is leading me and calling me there. But what will happen to my parents if I take that low-income job? What will happen to my children? Who will take care of them? The answer is this. If you follow God, he is able to take care of all these things and all these people in our lives. But he must always take precedence over our families. And that was the situation Abraham felt. Verse 14 reads, So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and skin of water, gave it to Hagar, and putting on her shoulder along with the child, sent her away. As difficult, as dire as, as the whole situation was, Abraham, in faith, obeyed God. Because he understood that the promise of God represented in Isaac, the promise that was to be fulfilled in Jesus, it will always take precedence over his love and his devotion to his family. And the world says this to us. That doesn't make any sense, you Christians. That doesn't make any sense. Family comes first. But they say that because they lack faith. Because faith in God is not having to understand right now, right this instant, how God will work this all out. Faith is trusting who God is, and whatever happens, God will take care of everything. We, are, we as believers have one job here. is to get out of the way and obey. Say that, get out of the way and obey. Abraham had to obey what God said and in God's promises, and so must you and I. And for that is faith. That's what faith is all about. Even if the picture is all distorted, we must try to see through the lens of the gospel here. Jesus is more important than me, more important than you, than your spouse, and yes, more important than even our children. It's Jesus first, family second. Can I hear an amen to that? But there's another truth that we, need to find, that we can find from this passage, and this is it. There is no second gospel. Say that. There is no second gospel. So, um, I have a friend who is a gambler. Uh, he bets on everyone and in everything. In the Super Bowl, he bet on both teams. In, in a boxing match, he'd bet on both fighters. So for him, it's not a win or a loss. It's both. He wins and loses. So, in reality, he commits to nothing. It's like when you see people, and you see their textbooks, and every line is highlighted. If you highlight everything, nothing is highlighted. You know what I'm saying? I believe that's how we deal with God sometimes. We'll make big confessions of faith. We'll promise and we'll pledge ourselves to trust him more and follow him no matter what. But at the same time, we devise a backup plan. A safety net just in case God doesn't come through, don't we? If you say you trust in God but you have a backup plan, then that means you never really trusted him to begin with. That's like people who sign a prenup before they marry. It's like, I will love you and devote my entire life to you, but just in case you cheat on me, right? cheat on you, 
At least you can't touch my assets. But I love you, circumstantially. Right? Now, I think Abraham was in that kind of situation. God gave him Isaac, the child of promise. But then again, he still had Ishmael, just in case. Because you never know. Something could happen. Something could happen to Isaac. He was just a baby. Infant mortality rate was super high back then. But not only that, I'm sure Abraham was also super proud of his son Ishmael too. I mean, who has a son at the age of 86? Ishmael was a testimony of Abraham's virility. Abraham's homies were probably saying, dude, you are the man. And so Abraham saw Ishmael and saw him as his legacy. But really, Ishmael was the pride of Abraham in many ways. And so as happy as Abraham was to have Isaac born, and obviously Sarah was even happier, it could be that Abraham had been clinging to Ishmael as his backup plan. Now, let's think of all this in light of the great test that was coming in the next chapter. God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Spoiler alert, I know, I'm sorry. This will be the biggest and the greatest test of Abraham's faith and his trust in the covenant promises of God. But, get this, but as long as Ishmael is there as a backup, the test God would place Abraham through would actually be no test of faith at all because if worse comes down to it, at least he'll still have Ishmael. Do you get what I'm saying here? And so after reminding Abraham that the promises will come through Isaac, God tells Abraham to send Ishmael away. Why? Because God is saying, there will be no alternative available to Abraham. You must trust me at my word, he says. But why is this important? Remember, Isaac represents the promises of the gospel that's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. There is only one God and one salvation, one way, one truth, one life, one gospel. If Isaac and Ishmael, get this, if they both share in the inheritance, the gospel would be lost. Think about it. To have them both be heirs would say that Abraham and Sarah's human effort, their little scheming to do what they believe that God couldn't do, was equally effective to bring about the promises of God's covenant. That their human effort was just as Equally effective as God's supernatural life from the dead, opening the barren room intervention by which Isaac was born. Do you hear me? They would have said, I am the same. In other words, that salvation can come by self-help or by trusting in God. It wouldn't matter because you can either let God do it or you can do it yourself. Folks, God has no plan but Jesus. There can be only one gospel of his son. I ask you, what is your backup plan today? Are you trusting in something or someone else outside of Jesus? How are you not fully trusting God today? Is it with your finances? Is it with your marriage? Is it your works righteousness that you feel that you need to keep earning God's approval? That the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus wasn't enough to satisfy the wrath of God. But if we force ourselves to be a little bit better, to behave a little bit better, then maybe God will finally say to us, you know what? You deserve it. You've earned it. You'll be all right. 
If you're doing everything else possible for God, attending church, doing this, doing that, serving here, giving that, serving there, but there's no actual surrendering of your entire life. There's no actual surrendering of your ambitions, of your fears and your worries and everything. If there's no surrender, then you are relying on another gospel. Because to not surrender to God means you are clinging on to something else. Maybe you even think you need to polish yourself a bit before you can come to God. That too is a false gospel. Come just as you are because God is the one who does the polishing. I need to refine myself a little bit. God does the refining. I need to sanctify myself a bit. God does the sanctifying. Come just as you are in your brokenness, in your damages, in your failures, every part of who you are, the imperfection of you. Come. And he will perfect you in Christ Jesus. You know, even as seasoned Christians, we have backup plans. If this church fails me, then I'll just go to another one. If my life group fails me, then I'll shut them out of my life. Look, I know it takes a lot to be transparent with one another. I know, I know it takes a lot to commit to your spiritual family here. But whenever we're not willing to go the extra mile with them, whenever Christ's bride, the church, is nothing more than just a weekend option and we're fine keeping the people at a distance, then we really relied on our backup plan because we're just waiting for it to fail. We're just waiting for the church to mess up. We're ultimately just waiting for God to go back on his promises. You cannot experience the fullness of God's grace if you don't go all in. You just can't. Just as a sick person can't fully get better if they only partially take the medication, we need to fully, in obedience, trust in God and be the bride of Christ, a.k.a. the church. A lot of Christians have this misconception that they can love Jesus but not love his bride, that they can serve Jesus but not serve his bride. Do you know why the church fails us? Because we fail the church. We need to stop with our backup plans. Instead, in obedience, follow God's plan. Trust me, his plans are far better than ours. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love one another. If we say we love God with all our hearts, then we will also love our neighbors as ourselves. Because you see, when Jesus said this, he meant it, it functions like faith and works. If we truly have the first, then the second will naturally follow. The first, we must surrender everything up to him. And receive the love he has first shown us. It is time to give up your backup. Say to your neighbor, give up your backup. My third and last point is this. God cares about the nations. You know, a lot of unbelievers will say that God is not present. Nor does he care about certain places in the world. Places that they're typically referring to as war-torn countries or places where there's simply no law and order. So we hear questions like, how can he allow suffering to continue? How can he allow wickedness to continue? How can he allow this and so on and so forth? Either he is able to stop it or he just doesn't care. So goes the logic of the cynic, right? But we know from this passage, it's actually the opposite. The Bible says that the reason the Lord Jesus doesn't put an end to the suffering is not because he is not concerned. It's the opposite. It's because of his grace 
Because through his grace and mercy, God withholds his judgment on the wicked, on the rebellious. God withholds his judgment on those who have sinned against God and who have sinned against God. All of us here. And that's pretty much here, everyone in the entire world. But he withholds it so that there will be more time for the gospel to be heard so that people might be saved from his wrath. So is it really that he doesn't care or is it simply because he is merciful? You see, it may seem like God doesn't care, but in reality, in reality, it's this intense love for the people. It's this intense compassion, grace, which makes it seem that way. Well, the same thing is happening here in our text. When we first read the passage, it seemed that God was being pretty darn harsh and uncaring. But then we read verses 17, 19, when it looks like they're going to die in the desert. God hears their cries, and he provides water for them. And again, he reminds them of the promise that he has for them. So let's put our glasses back on. We need to understand that Isaac is representing Christ's work to us. And if you understand that, then you'll really begin to understand how God's compassion is working out in all this. You see, whenever we read stories like this, of Bible passages, or even our real-life experiences, we're always scratching our heads in frustration, saying, God, save them now. Help them now. They're desperate. They're dying. They're hungry. They're starving. They're persecuted. Save them now. But God's plan isn't to save people now. It's to save them for eternity. That's what the gospel is. You see, God, he's, he's going to fulfill his covenant promise to bring salvation to the world through the singular seed of Abraham. Remember that? So not just Isaac, but through Christ, who's come to die for sinners and who will rise in victory. So apart from God's promise through Jesus, there is no hope whatsoever for the world. And more specifically, there will be no hope for Hagar and for Ishmael. And there will be no hope for people who have come from his line. And there will be no hope for us too as Gentiles. You see, God's plan of redemption through Jesus, it may have kicked or banished Hagar and Ishmael out. And all we readers can think is how hard their life must have been. But God, in preserving his plan of salvation through Jesus, God has actually compassionately and has actually graciously and actually mercifully given all people something better than an easy life here in this world. He has given us salvation from this imperfect world. And from his wrath. Because God's plan isn't always to save people now. It's to save people from an eternity without him. It is precisely because God cares about the nations, cares about people, that there is one gospel and one message of salvation, and his name is Jesus Christ. So I end with this. How is God challenging you today? Are you allowing your family to take center stage in your heart? Are you making an idol out of your spouse, your children, your future spouse, and your grandchildren? Is God calling you to do something, be something, give something, but you're concerned about the welfare of your family? If so, God says, surrender to me today. Or maybe today it's difficult for you to surrender to him. The singular message of the gospel is hard to grasp, and so you feel compelled to make things work for yourself, to earn spiritual credit, so to speak. Is that you today? Do you have a backup plan of salvation? Are you relying on something else in case God doesn't pull through? An easy way to figure that out is to ask yourself this. If I lose this or I lose them, my life would spin out of control. Ask yourself that. If I lose this, if I lose that person, my life would spin out of control. 
Or maybe you've always doubted God's love for the nations. Maybe not only the nations, but you doubted God's love for your unbelieving spouse, unbelieving mom or dad, and your children, coworkers, friends. God is giving you time to share the gospel with them. 1 Kings chapter 8, the entire chapter talks about God is the only God of all the nations. There is no greater love shown for the people of the world than God's love for them demonstrated on the cross where the Son of God died for our sins. Amen? Let's pray. So what's the Lord saying to you today? Who's first in your life? Think. Probe your mind, your hearts. I'm sure you'll be able to find in the surface. Who has taken center stage in your life? Because that center stage belongs to God and God alone. Not only that, are you relying on something or someone else? Is your spouse or your work, your diploma, your degrees, all that, is that your backup plan? Where you, where you get your validation? Where you get your identity? Where you feel something of worth? That will not save you. It cannot save you. God says, give it to me today. And know that the unbelieving world that surrounds us, the difficulty of the suffering and the pain that surround us, both domestic and foreign, it's not because God is uncaring, but because he is caring and he is loving and gracious slow to anger and he wants the gospel to penetrate even the most difficult and darkest of places and that could be really our neighborhood our community I do want to give you guys just a brief moment to pray to seek the Lord I believe the message has been pretty straightforward as well check your hearts Take this time to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to really shine his light in the places in our hearts that we have kept hidden for so long so that we might repent and be renewed. Okay, let's pray.